you can't not listen to them because the alternative to listening to them is losing them. So you must, if you have somebody that just, you know, can't handle the schedule or needs even a company car or something, you've got to listen to them and decide whether or not you can afford it. But more importantly, it should be what can you afford not to afford it. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Danny McVitie. Danny is the CEO and co-founder of Lapa Love, a business that delivers end-of-life hospice care to pets across America. She started the business immediately after graduation with nothing more than a website and cell phone. And over the 10 years since, it has grown into a multi-million dollar business employing more than 100 vets across the US. Performance that has won multiple awards and marks her out as one of the best entrepreneurs in veterinary medicine. Danny's a quick thinker, great raconteur, and is in possession of one of the sharpest minds in veterinary medicine. This was a conversation on rocket fuel, which is rich in lessons on leadership, life, and running a successful business. So sit back and enjoy my chat with Dr. Danny McVitie. So Danny McVitie, is it McVitie or McVitie? Or well, how the, do you pronounce the family it? says McVitie, yeah. but being a veterinarian, I enjoy saying McVitie. McVitie, Because exactly. I've had residents who are like, I would just die for your name. I just want that name. So I like my name. I, because I'm like not that fast in the uptake, just... I saw in the slides that Mary Gardner, your, your business partner in Lapa Love, had on her slides. I only saw the spelling there and it only jumped out at me there. I thought that is an awesome name for a vet. Isn't that Particularly great? being Scottish, the Mick in front of it is just even I know, better. That's, I know that, that's why you even asked me <laughs> to be here with you. You really should be a Glaswegian oh, no. vet Maybe I, practice. Like I'm McVetties. sure somebody was in my family, I'm sure. <laughs> that would work. Well, Danny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's uh, awesome to have you on. I have you know, met you a number of years ago, NAVC, when our mutual friend Andy Rourke introduced us. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty clear you were doing some interesting things there. And so being curious about the industry as I am, sort of following your sort of story and, and career development, I was really keen to have you on the podcast. So Thank very you. excited. I think Thank we're going to have a great conversation. Yes. I think just to start with, probably the place to go would be take us back and a lot of the listeners to the podcast are here in the US but also in the UK and Australia where maybe they're not familiar with your work and also maybe not familiar not just with your work but the niche that you've developed I mean I think that's yeah. quite fascinating so let's start at the beginning and just paint us a picture okay Danny McVeigh. okay so here who are you here I am and I get into vet school and of course we're all like okay, if I just get into vet school my life is going to be perfect right I just right. get in and then you're in there and you're like if I can just make it through vet school, my life is going to be good. <laughs> and then you get out of school. And, you know, me, I, I got into emergency medicine when I graduated because I had um, I had my first son between junior and senior year on purpose in vet school. Okay. So I get out. <laughs> okay. So that's interesting. All of us. So you're doing vet school. Mm-hmm. Pregnant, half son, midway yep. through vet school. Yep. On purpose. On purpose. Right. Like, so vet school's not hard enough. Like, you felt like just having a young child is going to, like... it. You know, and I think so many people can equate with the feeling of, I'm dedicating my life to becoming a veterinarian. Yeah. And I wanted to get out of school and actually practice veterinary medicine. Right. And I knew I wanted to have another child also. I wanted more yeah. than one. Yeah. So I looked at my schedule, and we had a three-month block between junior and senior years. So I was like, babe, listen, we got one month to make this happen. And we did. And so I had Baron, my son, at the beginning of that summer. How old were you? Because you guys do a, a degree before you go to vet school. Right. So how old were you at that point? I was 24 okay. at that point. Right. 
Yep. Old enough to make decisions, but yeah. not old to know always how it's going to work out, right? <laughs> right. So when I graduated, I had a, um, a one-year-old. And then for those of us in the United States, I had to take the NAVLE, the North yep. American yep. Veterinary Licensing yep. Exam, yep. which I actually failed for the first time. Okay. You know, And then I went back and took it again. And guess what happens when you take it again? You pass it. You pass it. And then I walk across the stage with everybody else. Right. Exactly. Yep. So when I graduated, I knew I wanted to spend time with my family. That's very important to me. So I decided to do emergency medicine. Yep. But doing emergency medicine, I found myself gravitating to the euthanasia cases, the end of life cases, the honestly, the crazy people, because I really like crazy people. (laughs) And Dave, like if veterinary medicine doesn't work out for me, I want to be an FBI negotiator because I find this stuff fascinating, how we talk to people. And for whatever reason, it's nothing that I would have planned, although I I did actually volunteer for human hospice in college. And I found myself very much drawn to the consumer centric way of practicing medicine. The best case I can give you of this is the most powerful case in my life where somebody came into the ER and she had her little dog wrapped in a blanket and she had a little, little tiny chihuahua and she looked at me and she goes, Doc, I know we have to euthanize, but please don't take her off my lap. I just want her on my lap. Yep. And of course, I'm thinking to myself a month or so out of school and like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I'm taught that I have to take the dog in the back, place an IV catheter, bring him back in, give the IV sedation, give the IV euthanasia, and then that's what we do. And I looked at her and I thought to myself, why not? Why can't I provide her that experience? And I did. I gave the IM sedation through the blanket because sterility really isn't a big issue at this point. <laughs> no. And then I gave the euthanasia injection through a butterfly catheter in the cephalic and there was nothing taped in her pet. And when I, after I gave that euthanasia solution, you know, her pet just literally passed away in her arms and she walked out of the clinic the exact same way she walked in. And that's where I got the name Lap of Love from. Because right. I decided every pet deserved that. Every human deserved that. Yeah. Now, when you Google Lap of Love eight years ago, we were not the service that arose at the top of the page at right, all, right? right? But now we have that corner on SEO. The thought had never occurred to me. <laughs> but now it has. <laughs> right. <laughs> that thought can never be removed from my brain. Right, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. So you've cornered the SEO market in Google and replaced other Luckily. Less. But it did. Yes. It developed into this thing that I really loved. And I had no idea what it was going to turn into at all. But yeah. I found myself very good at it. And maybe because I, I graduated in the part of the class that makes the top 90% possible. <laughs> you know, that I really found, I found a little bit of relief and fulfillment from knowing that I wasn't going to screw this up because I can deliver compassion. Describe for us more a little bit about hospice care as a concept I mean did it exist before you started doing what you were doing or I mean the things that were done in hospitals were clearly existed and those processes existed but as a it seems that's a a niche a fragment of the market that you've really taken and put on the map certainly for me yeah and so can you just describe a little more about what hospice care actually is and yeah. what it entails? What's the day-to-day? Yeah, absolutely. Like? And veterinary hospice care has been alive as long as veterinary medicine has been alive, right? Yeah. But generations ago, we were mechanics fixing the horses that brought our soldiers into battle. Our profession looked different than it does today. We're much more like pediatricians now than we were the mechanics of before. So hospice care has always existed. It just hasn't always been called hospice care. Right. And to my knowledge, Lap of Love is the first business that's had the, the names veterinary hospice together in a company name. And when I first started, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I mean, literally, I had no idea what it was going to turn into. Yeah. I just knew that there was a case of, of the potential to help somebody. So people would come to the ER on a Friday, and they knew their cat had renal failure. They would tell me, and they say, Doc, listen, he's just not feeling well. Is there anything we can do? Because my husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister get in town on Sunday, and I would really like for them to be here. Yeah. So then I would give pain management. There's so many things we can do. And then I'd come to their home and euthanize on Sunday, which is, that's what hospice care is, yeah. is managing that 
that person's relationship with their pet such that they come to the conclusion and you know we help them through the decision making process at what point does a pet owner and how do they go about contacting you and i'm imagining that you know in a case like that the actual hospice period is actually quite a short window but with the disease that you know various diseases some of them are going to go down you know, deteriorate very, very quickly, quickly, whereas right. others, it could be a couple of years right. from a terminal diagnosis like chronic renal failure or something. So how did you start the service and how did you develop it to start ad- adapting to those different changes? Yeah. I started it simply by going online, doing a logo maker. You know, I did not spend more than $250 before I actually had a client call me. And I remember where I was when I got the first phone call. And you know how it developed was literally just me trying to talk to the families and walk them through the decision-making process. That's what hospice is in veterinary medicine because we're the only medical profession licensed to actually take a life, right? Right, right. So that's what hospice care looks like at, at the beginning. But what we really end up doing is the vast majority of the time is euthanasia. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're calling us for. And they're finding me a lot of times because they don't want to go back to the regular veterinarian because they think that they're going to be talked into more treatment. And they go, I just don't want to do anything else. My doctor is going to talk me into something. So that's a perspective of it. But also clients will find us over half of the time from the regular veterinarian. So the regular veterinarian knows that this client just needs a little bit of something extra. And that's when they refer to us and we walk them through that process. Got it. Because that was one of the questions I first came into my head when I heard about what you were doing. And I thought back to my own relationship, my own clients and the animals actually. Right. Was... You know, and I'm sure doctors all around the world have this where I would be Uncle Dave, such and such. Yep. And the clients would be like, not just gut, like really upset if it wasn't me because I'd had that relationship with them. And actually many times, like if it wasn't me and I couldn't be there, I'd be quite upset by that as well because I'd gotten to know these patients so well. Right. So that was the, one of the initial things I was curious about is how that dynamic works between you and a practice and when you would get involved and what sort of client is looking for that. Like, And it's interesting when you say like they feel like they're going to be over-serviced, in fact, right. by the regular veterinarians. So that was the main driver of referral or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we really have a very interesting dynamic in veterinary medicine forming yeah. because we're not just all cradle to grave anymore. We have a lot of different niches and there's right. so much potential that's available in dermatology, oncology. There's a lot. Yeah. So we all kind of tend to work into our niches. And really, I think the heart of it comes to whether or not the client is bonded to their pet if they value that experience yeah. more than they value whether or not their doctor is going to be there. Yes. So a lot of the doctors will say to me, well, we do that too. We go to the home also, but only for our best clients or only when I can. Yeah, right. But my response is over 80% of our calls come with less than 24 hours notice. Right. So just like going into this world is unpredictable, you know, you have an OBGYN, right, that you've seen for nine months. But the one that's on call the night you go into labor, you don't always know who that's going to be. <laughs> that's right. So that's right. the time when your pet really needs that transition out of this world, you don't know who's going to be on call. Yeah. But I can tell you that this group is fantastic or this doctor is fantastic or regardless, you want your pet at home, which is where they're most comfortable. So, so siphoning off that. that niche of emotionally connected clients that want that personal they want to know the person that's going to be there and releasing their pet at the end is what built the business how quickly did the business grow and you know you've come out you've started it on a very low budget 
Talk me through the early growth phase and, and what that was like as an experience for you. How far out of college were you when you started this? Oh my gosh, Dave, I was three months out of school. I was <laughs> right. three months out of school when I saw my first patient. So, you know, one to two months is when I really started formulating these ideas and yep. knowing what I was good at. And I think yep. we too far often we want to get two or three degrees removed from what we're good at. Like I should not go start a restaurant. Because I know nothing about starting a restaurant, okay? Right, right. But I do know veterinary medicine. And then one degree off that is this, you know, this new niche that has kind of formed. So I started it three months out of school, and it just slowly grew and grew and grew. And uh, six months down the road, I'm, I'm getting calls. I'm less than a year out of school at this point. And I'm getting calls from doctors around the country, you know, maybe one to two a week saying, Danny, how do I do this? I just heard about you. This is an amazing service. How are you doing this? And it was about a year after I had started that I contacted my business partner now, Dr. Mary Gardner. And I'm like, Mary, you're a great friend in, in vet school, right? And I said, I know you have nine years in the tech business before you became a veterinarian. I need Build a software. A and a no, CRM. not even a website. Because I just did a form website. You can get a website for $20 <laughs> now. Like, not even a website. Right, you know right. I mean? Now we have it, obviously, all the bells and whistles. But you can do that stuff so cheap. But what I needed was a way to make my time more efficient yeah. and to scale. I knew we could scale it. But I was doing my DEA login on Excel spreadsheet. And I knew there was a faster, more efficient way of doing it. So I contacted her and and just, you know, at first she was like, oh, that was so depressing. Everyone, everyone says, right? That sounds so depressing. You know, but after talking with her, she's like, oh my gosh, Danny, this is amazing. And long story short, we partnered together. And because of the laws in the U.S., we actually started as a franchise at first, which just a franchise is a legal definition of you're your own entity. I am my own entity, but we work together under a common name and a common goal and yep. a provide training and structure. Yep. So we grew as a franchise and about two years ago, we, we went to about Did 40. Did people pay you then for access to, is that how Fantastic question. So normally in a franchise, that's how it works. But with us, it did not. Right. So we had zero franchise fees and I cannot tell you how many attorneys were like, they have to charge. I'm like, no, we're not doing that because our target market for our B2B, our business to business interaction yep. is young veterinarians. Yep. That's the majority, not all of them. We have some fantastic ones that are, have been out for a long time, yep. but I want young veterinarians and they don't have disposable money. Yep. So my discussion with them was, if you don't make money, we don't make money. Yep. And I don't want you to be in this for the money either. I want you to make a great income and be fulfilled. But the fulfillment is a feeling. Right. It's not a person. It's not a place. It's not a job. Fulfillment is a feeling you get from doing what you love to do. And if this is what you love to do, we're going to both be successful. And we don't, as a company, we don't make money unless you do. So we're going to invest in you. You invest in us. And about um, we, we grew to about 45 doctors. And at that point, which was about two years ago, yep. we switched to the employee model. Yep. So now, and of course, a young business has different problems than a mature business. So we have now different you know, areas of opportunity. I don't call them problems. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Different areas of opportunity now that we did not have before. So now we have a team that can answer all the phone calls from clients, whereas before we would literally send a cell phone to these doctors and they would answer the phone themselves. So we have a different support team that can support that. And we can afford to hire people on a salary basis yeah. and give them a very good quality of life. Okay. So the doctors that work for you then, mentioned them, probably just a couple of questions on them. Who are they? And I'm curious about, you know, there's a lot of disenfranchisement, I think, in the profession at the minute. Right. So there's certainly there is a feeling that the reality, the real version of veterinary medicine isn't matching up to the expectation Right. And that's starting to cause some things to happen. Like people are leaving general practice, which I personally think is kind of sad. Right. But it's real and yep. need to do something about that. One of the things that a lot of doctors want are growth opportunities. And I wondered how hard or easy is it for you to retain staff when 
you know, they train for five years. They're going to be doing, you know, euthanasia is right. the end point of that. How do you keep them motivated or what is it that stays with them or, you know, that gives them the satisfaction in what they're doing? Yeah. And I think what you said a second ago, which was the expectations. What kind of expectations do you have? So not only do we think we need to have proper expectations for veterinary students getting into school about what school is going to be like, right? But also about what it's going to be like when you get out yeah. and what that's going to feel like. I'm on the academic admissions committee at the University of Florida for the past four years. So I read these essays of these students wanting to get into vet school and they're just literally dying to get into vet school. But what I've seen, because I also speak very frequently, I'm talking 22 of the 30 vet schools here in the United States just this year alone. I've been to many of them previously and they're already getting burned out. And I believe that they're getting burned out because they are just whilst in vet school, in vet school, while they're in vet school and then they graduate. And I think some of that is is very multifactorial and it's different for everybody. But are they being taught by professors that are already burnt out? So then they're learning burnt out behavior. Are they extending themselves beyond what their best is? And I always tell them, do your best, not more than your best, not less than your best, not your mom's best do your best. And when you get out, try to find that fulfillment in whatever you do. So the doctors that come to us, you don't do death unless you love it. All right. (laughs) So we're lucky in the fact that we attract. I don't even say that we go get. It sounds like a morbid Christmas party already. It is. Oh, we have fun. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you, I've had a, a couple of friends in the pet funeral home industry and they're like, oh, the mortician conferences are the best. They're so fantastic, <laughs> right? But it really did. And even doing this, euthanasia really did change. And we can talk about this in a minute, but it changed. It did not even change because change infers that what came before is bad. It evolved who I am, what kind of mother I am, what kind of friend I am, what kind of business leader I am also. Because you don't look at yourself as just this, you know, immortal being anymore. Like everything is fluid. And so we have those same expectations for our team. People are going to get married and they're going to have babies and they're going to cut down their hours and they're going to get transferred somewhere else and they're going to want to do something different. You know, I can't believe the attrition rate that we have. It is less than 1%. We don't lose people. And I'll tell you, even our support team, we have 26 people that actually answer phones for our doctors around the country. And we're handling 3000 phone calls a week right now, a week. And Every single person I say, I I talk to them before they join the team and I say, look, this may not be what you want to do for the rest of your life. And that's totally fine. I completely get it. But I promise you that you will learn skills and techniques here that will serve you in the rest of your life. So then they're not there to do a job, but they're there to learn things that are going to help them in every area of their entire life. So go on to some of those things in a little second. But you said something there that I wonder what your insights I think you you would have a useful insight that might help out the wider practitioner, practice owner. And that is, yeah, and then the the attrition rate that you have is ridiculous. So if we can just speak for a second to, you mentioned there, like your your team, they're all, that sounds like a lot of them are female. All female? No, no, no. We have about, I think about 10 males and they're fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, they're wonderful. So a large proportion of your staff are female. They're all graduating, sort of 23, 24. I assume many of them, as you mentioned, do want to go on and have families and have children, and they stay within your business. Because what is it that you do that allows that flexibility that I think this is a huge area, like a massive under-engaged, under-talent pool that we have that goes away, has a family, completely and utterly, like as a profession, we just haven't gotten our head around that. And as a sort of male ownership dominated profession, I don't I don't feel like we've grasped that at all and we've not created opportunities to re-harness and re-engage that section of our 
workforce. Right. But it sounds like you're doing some things that actually are. Yeah. So what things are you doing? And is there any way that any lessons that, that we in the wider profession can learn from that? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think in a very important part of this entire discussion is understanding the fact that veterinarians, people that are graduating, are the hottest commodity right now in veterinary medicine. Meaning if you looked at even just a few years ago when I graduated, there were over two applicants for every job posting that there was. Now it's the opposite. You have got five job postings for every one applicant, meaning that now that the employers are the ones that are trying to just really just hire somebody, right? So it's... Where do they all go? I think that we have more jobs available. The industry, the, the market has turned back around. It's not that the veterinarians left, it's that the opportunities for us are boundless. And now we look at graduating 85% women, and then let's, the vast majority of them do not have children in school. You know, many of them have delayed marriage and everything. Yep. They're gonna get out, and we're gonna have this finite pool of doctors. And let's just say, on a very, very low ball, a third of them go off and get married and then have babies, right? right? And they drop down to, let's say, another third of availability. I don't think we understand what we're gonna be facing in the next 10 years. It's really going to be amazing. I'm halfway excited about it, mainly because I can't not be excited about it. <laughs> There's no use being worried about it, right? What am I going to do? Yep. I keep thinking that I should actually um, start a vet school. Honestly, that's probably one of the better ideas is start one that's completely focused on, you know, very consumer-centric medicine. But to get back to what you said, what are we doing differently? Yeah. There was this TED Talk that I saw a few years ago that um, talked about passion. Yeah. And he said that three components of passion. And who is the speaker? I honestly don't remember who the speaker was, but it was quite a long time ago before the TED, you know, really is what right, it was. Right. But the speaker said there's three components of having a passionate life is freedom, growth, and contribution. And there are a lot of corporations, especially, and, and one of them is the, the largest corporation here. And, and they actually had an attrition rate that was close to 30% a couple of years ago. Yeah. But what they did is they started calling back these people that were leaving and saying, how can we make you stay? What can we do? And they all said, I want to drop down. I want, you know, to part-time. I want to move. And that's one of the things that we've done is really listen to people because we... Honestly, I can tell you that you can't not listen to them because the alternative to listening to them is losing them. So you must, if you have somebody that just, you know, can't handle the schedule or needs even a company car or something, you've got to listen to them and decide whether or not you can afford it. But more importantly, it should be what can you afford not to afford it. So when somebody says, I'm strained, Danny, you know, I'm doing too many appointments. Okay, we're going to cut it down. We're going to do this. We're going to adjust this. And we have these personal relationships with the doctors that work with us. And I'll tell you, the most important employee or team member, because even I don't, rarely use the word employee, yeah, right, but the too. most important team member that we have is our practice managers. And those are the ones that are constantly talking to our doctors. And they know that they are the servant leaders of the doctors that they represent. And we have 108 doctors with us right now. So it's actually, it's not huge. We have a personal connection with everybody. Right. And it's very important to me that we have that personal connection to everybody. Yeah. Those practice managers are, are there to support the doctors in the way that they need it. So if somebody hasn't had a date night, you know, in a year, then we're going to go give them a, a gift certificate for that. Heck yeah. Yeah. Are you kidding me? The things that are, are possible, if you just care about somebody, sending a $50 floral arrangement to their house because, I don't know, they had a bad day. That's the best $50 you can spend in that week is Amen. to have that person support it. Now, they're going to not turn down an appointment that's coming in the last minute that you're open, right? Just because you care about them. And yeah. we actually have a, a framed quote that I said, and then they framed it for me. Uh, <laughs> in our office, it says, the way we treat each other is the reflection of how we treat the families that call us for help. And there's a Buddha saying that has this, how you do one thing is how you do everything. You can't treat your team members like crap and then expect them to treat your clients with compassion. You treat them the way that you would like them to treat everybody else. The behavior you want to see from everybody you else. You have to emulate right? it. 
Absolutely. So you employ like flexible working shift patterns. Can people, you don't operate from a physical location or is it all mobile services that you're delivering? Tell me how this thing's structured. We have our, our headquarters in Tampa. So our, yeah. our main office is in Tampa with all of our support team. Yeah. And then our doctors work on a mobile basis. Right. And that's kind of the part of the freedom, part of the passion, right? The freedom, yeah. the growth and the contribution. Yeah. So they all travel to the client's homes and we do a lot of support things like even giving them an audible.com account so you can listen to audio books. So when you're on the road, and podcasts. And podcasts, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, listen to all these things that help you stay motivated and help you yep. feel like you're contributing and growing yep. also. Okay, so that's some freedom. Talk to me more about the growth then and the contribution then. Right. And the growth is something that is really very specific to everybody's particular wishes. Yep. Some people will call us and say, Dan, I just want to do more. Well, let's, let's talk about it. You know, what are your ideas? What are you great at? Oh, I love writing. Oh my gosh. And write me something. Like we know all the, you know, some people that would love to put that in, in some type of platform. And luckily Mary and I, you know, know some people and, and we could just send off an email and we've gotten quite a few of the doctors that work with us and even some of our technicians and support team. If they write something, they get it, it actually published out there. And it's such a cool thing for us to be able to provide them with that. Yep. And then the contribution as well. We have this other part of who we are and we're continually developing this, which is exposing our team to the impact that they make on families. And so I'm not even going to give it away, but this year our Christmas present to our entire team is going to be exposing them to the impact. And last year, our Christmas present to our whole team was a personalized paw print necklace of their own pet. So they got to wear that around their neck. So they remember why they're there every single day as well. And I think I saw in Mary's lecture earlier, she must have been wearing She has hers as well. well. Oh, yeah. yeah, And almost everyone. Paw print. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hers is a little bit bigger. (laughs) Are there any other things that you do to, I mean, really, you're working in the very much aligning with the, you know, the human needs and the engagement of your team, which sounds phenomenal. What else do you do? Yeah. You mean personally or professionally? Professionally. Yeah, yeah. For the team or personally, you choose. You can go either way. You know, and and there's that constant phrase of work-life balance. But really, the work-life integration is something that's becoming more and more prevalent, you know, as, as we talk. Because, I mean, I can assume the personality that you have as well. I mean, you can't separate this work at all. Like, I love what I do. I mean, I absolutely love it. And I want my kids to see that. They come with me to the talks when I'm talking at colleges. I've seen that. Yeah. Most of the time, you know, but they get to come with me and they're sitting there with me and they're watching me engaged in what I'm doing as well. So it's a really important thing for that to be part of it. Even I'll be in conference calls, you know, in the office and my kids will be in there. And that's just, that's just the way it is. How old are your kids now? My kids, my son is nine and my daughter's six and a half. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, you know, I I think that we can get very bogged down by separating them, but I just don't believe that we always have to separate them. I would actually, when I was first starting a business, as you know, you know, particularly with death, it doesn't always wait. So there's so many times, and I mean countless times, that I would have my kids and I'd have no other option. You know, my husband at the time was not there or something like that. And I would have to get a call from a client and it was, I go with my kids or I don't go at all and this pet suffers, right? So I would load up my kiddos and give them the iPads and we would, you know, stand there and I'd I'd walk into the home. And it was one time I actually, um, the euthanasia was taking a little bit longer than the normal. So I walked out and I told the family, I didn't tell them that my kids were in the car, but then when I had to walk out, I did. I'm like, listen, my kids are in the car. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't think that at all. It's totally fine, but I'm just going to check on them. So they insisted that the kids 
come in and they sat there and we just had this fantastic talk and my kiddos get to see this and you know the euthanasia is they're either going to be therapists or they will be in therapy because of, of the what <laughs> right, I've exposed right, them right. to but they're very centered you know in, in what we do because I I like that integration so it's hard like people have a hard time and the sense of separation or overlap is one it's kind of an interesting area I remember when my daughter was maybe about 10 months and it might be better my wife didn't listen to this podcast because <laughs> so I got a call. I'm, I'm so I own two practices at the time. I'm on my day off and I'm working and, and it's daddy daughter day. We started out with that. It mm-hmm. didn't go so well. Right. <laughs> I wasn't very good at sitting still with a six month old and, and not actually doing stuff and not working. However, I sat at home and I get a call from the practice and there's a surgery and like I'm the surgeon so I end up having to drive across and, and we're not quite sure if it's going to go surgical or not but it's like it's looking as possible so I'm going to do some imaging, blah, blah, blah. Take my daughter, she's in the stroller, the buggy and she's locked in there and like there is, like it's a veterinary hospital and she is like, I'm, I end up, so we take her to surgery in theater. I can hear her screaming her oh ones gosh. out because right. I'm not there. And she's right. sort of freaking out. And one of the other vets, like it's like one of the vets who works for me, actually bought the practice from, he's trying to coochie her, but she doesn't know him at all. Right, she's right. freaking out more and I'm just dying <laughs> oh in this gosh. operation, like feeling like the worst dad in the world. How do people, like you sound like you've gotten the ability, and I suppose being a business owner, you're able to create life the way that you want it. You can construct life the way that works for you. What about for team members that work for you or team members out there? Like, I feel very passionate. Like, we should be spending as much time with our families as we Mm -hmm. possibly can. That's crazy important for their development. But we have this, like in veterinarians, we have this vocation and we love what we do. So you can't just have everyone bringing their kids into work. That would be kind of epically disruptive. So... And I think this maybe gets back to like, how do we create jobs for the, you know, we, we don't hire single guys, right? but we've created jobs that are best suited to single guys in some ways. Right. That's what it feels like at times. It does. And so there's a pressure on, on people either to not have a family or to have a family and then have to give up their career. It feels like we don't have the roots back in right. or the structures of the processes, the systems. We haven't thought this through and figured this through. So how do we, and maybe this is too big a question for a little podcast. It's a large question, but I think it's very important for us as business owners and then part of a, a profession that we've dedicated our lives to be part of, you know, to really understand that there is no easy answer to this. There isn't one answer. I mean, you're an entrepreneur and to me, an entrepreneur, that word is a personality trait. Okay. It's not a job title. Yep. It's a personality trait that says I work my butt off that it's two o'clock in the morning. I remember that when I was first starting Lap of Love, I was so energized and I still have those moments of that type of energy still. And there's some that aren't that type of energy, yep. you know, but you have those moments of like, I am going on two hours of sleep, but I can't not do this. Dave, I've been up for 16 hours talking today, you know, and, and, and you too, right. like you just keep going and going and going <laughs> and that's okay. I don't expect everybody and to I do that. I shove a mic in your face. And and, but, 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 but I love it. Like, right. And I, and if it comes to the moment that I don't like it, I'm going to say, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed now. (laughs) And yet I still don't find that. Do I collapse in bed at night? Of course. You know, do you peel off your socks and be like, oh my gosh. It's the best sleep you get, right? It's when you're so utterly exhausted that you just. And they call that in flow. Yeah. You know, are you in flow and are you on purpose? And look, it's 2017 right now, right? Next year's going to be 2018, then 2019. Yeah. You can always change later. Right. But right now, if you're in flow, stick with it. It's fine. Let's talk about flow for a second. 
I found it very easy, and I think maybe because the system makes it easy in event practice to find flow. Like the work's just there, so right. you get in and you do it. And so flow in event context was never hard. Flow for me in a more of a business context and in a creative context, I, I can get there. But do you have any like ways, habits, things that you do, routines to try and encourage the development of flow? And maybe before that, just expand a little bit more on what flow actually is, because I'm sure there's people listening wouldn't be too clear on what right. that was. You know, and, and the best way I can explain flow is is by asking somebody, what is like your most favorite thing to do right now? If you could just snap your fingers and just do something that just has you feel really on purpose. Be in the bar having a beer. There you are, right? Okay, well, well maybe <laughs> not. only with, because it's... At, this isn't the best time okay, to do so that's it. that's a bad answer, but right. let me interrupt you. Well, you know, when I'm interviewing team members, because I want to talk to everybody before they join our team and make sure that we're on the same page, right? I always I try to get them into their natural state. Like, tell me something that you love doing. And for some people, it's, I love running. I just love running. Why do you love running? And I think it's something that we also don't do enough of in our life is ask questions and then shut our mouth <laughs> and let somebody answer. Oh my God. Right? Yes. So when somebody answers, I love running. Why do you love running? I just, I, I don't know. I just love this. I don't like running. So I'm just making this up. But <laughs> this is from a predatory animal, you know? But you know, I don't know why I like it. I just feel this wave and you see their eyes kind of, you know, glaze off into the distance of like recalling what that feeling is when they're running or when they're on their bike or when they're with their horse or when they're with their kids, whatever it is. When you are so on purpose that you don't remember any of the things that you have to do in life, then that's called flow. And sometimes it's moments, sometimes it's hours and sometimes it's years, Yep. you know, and that's me. My aunt used to say, like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep when I'm right? dead. That sleep is I'm dead. a very common phrase that I would utter. Yeah. Well. And not to mean the sleep isn't important, obviously, but, you know, knowing what really drives you and, and gives you that passion. I think that it's like that definition of, you did bring this up, but it's like the definition of porn right back in the eighties. It got all the way to the Supreme court and the, the, no, well, the, the judge actually said, he's like, you know what? I don't know how to define it, but you know what it is when you see it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you may not know how to define flow, but you know what it is when you're in it. Right, like you right. just really, really know it. You do. And actually, the most recent, most perfect moment of flow that I experienced was snowboarding in Austria. Yes. There was two super powerful takeaways from this trip. Like, I went away, and it was people I'd, I'd met whilst living in Barcelona, and they invited me to go over snowboarding. And the first takeaway was, go with the flow. Like, if the, the opportunity is there, and like these were people we hadn't known for very long, and like, go snowboarding, get to know deep in the relationship and go. So I was just going to go. I was apprehensive because I'm like, okay, I actually suck at snowboarding. Like I haven't done it for like <laughs> over a decade, so maybe hard to 20 learn. years. Yeah. And when I did it, it was on a kind of a little slope in Scotland on very icy, like not very nice snow. Now I'm going to the Austrian Alps to a, a lovely resort called Ischgl where the, it's like serious hills. And I'm like, there is a good chance I might actually perish on a mountain here right. so the fear's there right and right. like stuff it it's on let's go and i got to the slopes and i saw the mountains and i thought holy shit i'm in trouble <laughs> right. i'm way out of my depth <laughs> and so the first thing i did was i went straight to the office and i'm like i need a mentor how much is a snowboard lesson and they told me how much it was and it wasn't cheap and i'm like fine book it in right now it was the best like two hours i could possibly have like the best money i could have spent because inside of, she was a great coach. And, and I knew she was a great coach because within 45 minutes, I could snowboard. Right. I could do link turns. I was getting down the mountain. Yeah. And because of that, the rest of the trip was absolutely amazing. But it was amazing because I found flow in the mountain. Yeah. Like in a way, I, I have rarely experienced it. And it was like, it, it would have just kept going. Unless it got dark, so I had to stop. I'd have kept going. 
and my, and my calves and my thighs were just absolutely yes. killing. Right. So I don't think I'm actually going anywhere with that other than to describe the state of flow no, that but I what, experienced. But what I'm hearing However, you say is like, that's when there was nothing going on in my brain. And I was so in tune with the things around me and where I was at that moment. And really flow, you can even replace that with the word present. Completely right. present right. with where you are. So what things do you do to try and encourage yourself into that state and be present in the moment? Have you done anything to try and cultivate that? As a, I mean, it's a very effective state to work in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely. And, and the higher intensity of emotion of what we do, everything from the business to am I doing the right thing as a leader? Am, you know, am I communicating with the team properly? You know, are Mary and I communicating properly? Like, there's all these different types of things. But something that I have found, I was raised Catholic, you know, so I've got the guilt and shame thing down really, really yeah, well. You know, I, I say that. Yeah, there you go. yeah. But something that, that has evolved for me and you can't do death without being spiritual on a level. And it's to me, it's evolved into a meditative practice. And sometimes that's five minutes in the car. Yep. And look, even if you're meditating in the car at a stoplight, just close your eyes. The people behind you are going to remind you that it's green. They'll honk at you. They're going to tell you. And then you get to open your eyes and go, right? I mean, the universe is going to deliver what you need <laughs> at, when you need it. I right. really believe that. Right. And catching those little moments of time. And I find it very interesting even now. I've got only about a four-minute drive home from my office to my work. And I find myself getting in my car and sometimes it's the only four minutes that I have alone in the entire day. Yeah. Literally, if I respond to an email, there's a 50% chance I'm in the bathroom responding to an email because people will wait in line, you know, everyone come in the office and I love it, but it's the only four minutes I have alone. And even now I find myself picking up my phone and responding to somebody, but I always ask myself, is this what I need to be doing right now? So for me, it's the combination of meditation and doing the things that really energize me and being with my family, turning my phone off. Those are things that re-energize yeah. me. And I'm not going to blame anybody else because so many times we get into the victim stage of so-and-so is doing this. You're making me this. Like I've gotten that phrase out of my vocabulary. Nobody makes me do anything. Yeah. All right. I feel sad when I can't get re-energized, right? Not so-and-so is making me not energized or so-and-so is making me, you know, right. drained. Like, yeah. no, that's not the case. Be the player. I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark here. You've read Conscious Business by Frank Kaufman. Have you read that book? I have not, but it sounds right up my alley. I, I, I get the sense it would be wow. very much a book you would enjoy. And that's just when he talks a lot about the victim and the player states, right. um, which I think are, uh, yes, my mind was kind of blown reading that book. Right. It just redefined leadership for me. Um, let's touch on leadership for a second then. You are... You know, I've seen the comments from your team posted and, you know, glowing, glowing praise. Like you're running a successful, rapidly growing business. You're taking a lot of boxes that define what good leadership looks like. What does leadership mean to you? Uh, how do you define it? You know, it's, it's, very, it's, it's evolved for me over the past couple of years. I was raised by two very successful entrepreneurs. They didn't go to college, my parents. What um, did your parents do? Tell me more. My parents had me when they were 19. And a couple of years later, they had my brother. And then we moved to Florida from Kansas. And they bought my dad's dad's business, um, Wire Manufacturers Representatives. So they were Wire Cable and Lighting. They're manufacturers reps. Got it. So they okay. sold wire cable and lighting, you yep. know, the commercial kind that would go into big buildings. And it wasn't something they were necessarily passionate about, but my parents are both passionate about people. And my dad's the kind of guy that can talk to anybody from the bum on the side of the street to the president of the United States. He can make anybody feel good. Yep. And my mom's is How very... How does he do that? You know what it is, is he really cares. And there's this phrase about, you know, are you going to be interesting or are you going to be interested in somebody else. Yeah. And so he just asks people and he smiles and he's genuine and he, you know, just asks them about their life. I mean, it's, 
he's just so humble about it. Back to questions again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Open-ended questions and being quiet enough to listen and and then be engaged also, right? Not thinking to respond. My mom is a centered yoga teacher, you know, that she does that now just on her free time. Right. But they grew this business that had this combination of being able to talk to anybody and gain rapport and trust with anyone. And then that, that backend creativity and the spirituality that my mom brings to everything. So I was raised with that. And the leadership has, to me, evolved from, you know, being an entrepreneur, which came very easy to me. So being an entrepreneur, I started a little business when I was 16. I took my miniature horses, little kids' birthday parties. And I knew if I missed a phone call and I didn't call them back, I ruined the potential to, you know, make a lot of money in a very short amount of time. And I was a server at the same time for a very short amount of time. <laughs> and I made the return on my time investment was so much more doing my little kids' birthday parties with my miniature horses. Yep. So that's how I paid for my own car when I grew up and my parents were financially very conservative. So I learned those key tools also. So then when I was in school, my husband at the time and I, we started an ATM company. And so then I got my first view of residual income, automated teller machines. Okay. So just ATMs. So you you did mean just... We literally purchased ATMs, put them in restaurants and bars in a college town. And then by the time we graduated, we owned about 75, 80% of the ATMs that were at the University of Florida campus, you know, in Gainesville, Florida. Of course, the industry is much different now. So that entrepreneur personality comes very easy to me. Now, what I've had to evolve over the past couple of years is leading a large company. So that's very different. And actually, somebody just um, showed me this article and it was fascinating on Google. And it talked about how, you know, when you're starting a business, it's about being a leader and you need to lead your consumers through and you need to make sure that you're harnessing the right brand and yada, yada. Now that stays, that doesn't go anywhere. But then when you become the leader of a larger company, company, you actually need to develop leaders. Right. So it's not just about leading a force anymore, but it's actually about developing these servant leaders that can go out and do the exact same thing. And that means that they have to have that freedom, that growth, that contribution. They need to be forward thinking. And if I'm ever wondering how to do that with somebody, ask them. Literally, if I've got somebody and and maybe we're just not getting through a project, you know, it just, it's, hey, tell me what's going on. Everything going okay? Is there anything else we can do? And I'm so honored that I feel like we have such a personal relationship with the people that work with us that if someone's going through a rough time, we know, we know, and we're going to tailor these things around what's going on, you know, because the alternative is that you don't and you either burn them out or they leave you. And to me, that's not better. No, no, absolutely not. And the process of growing your leaders What are the important lessons that they have to learn? You know, I think the most important thing, and it's not dissimilar than being a parent also, which is emulating the things that you want to see in others and doing the right thing no matter what, no matter what. If my team calls me because all of our doctors are booked up on a day, they know that if I'm in town, there's a 99% chance that I will load my kiddos up in the car and we're going to go to an appointment. Even if it's nine o'clock at night, they know that. And it's important to me to do that, not just because it's the right thing to do for the pet, but it's because it's the thing that I need to emulate with them. So I'm being the person that I want them to be. And it is, it's just about treating them the way that you want them to treat everyone else. I changed directions slightly and, you know, your confidence and I get the impression you will back yourself to do what needs to be done and tend to back an idea and that you believe in your heart you are going to be successful yeah. and that's coming across very loud and clear what I'm curious about is another area that I think a lot of people seem to suffer with in veterinary medicine and that is the double whammy of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and perfectionism Yeah, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on those two 
I'm going to hesitate to call them diseases, but but conditions. Conditions, right, yeah. You know, I was actually watching you speak at CVC a few months ago, and you presented a story of what it looks like on paper, right? And then what your real life story is. So I'm going to follow your suit and say, here's the outside, right? Here's what this looks like. This looks like I graduated, you know, veterinary school, that three months out of school, I started this business that just took off in a very short amount of time. We franchised the concept. We've got about 108 doctors now that are working with us and a fantastic team with amazing culture. And I've got two wonderful kids that are fantastic and, you know, follow me everywhere. And I'm in a fantastic relationship that is just the most awesome, you know, bonding that I could ever imagine between two people. And to boot, I have an amazing business partner and everything's perfect and wonderful in my life. Right. I mean, that's the outside story. I was in veterinary school. and the, The last exam freshman year was nutrition. And I sat down to the nutrition exam. Um, well, I'll back up a few hours. And I started studying for that nutrition exam at about 2 a.m. Because I was completely <laughs> burned out. You know, I, I was just, I was so sick of studying by that point. Yep. And I failed that exam. I failed that exam. I was actually in the class with my business partner now, Dr. Mary Gardner and Dr. Andy Rourke. The three of us were in the class together. And I had to repeat the second semester of my freshman year. So I actually was, I was held back a year. And when you're in that situation, it's like you think that everyone else is talking about you. You, yep. you yep. think that they're, you know, you're the only one that has ever had this problem. You're the only one that got let into vet school and you shouldn't have been because, oh my gosh, they must have been looking at someone else's transcripts and not mine, <laughs> right, right? right? So when you talk about imposter syndrome and whether or not you're smart enough to be there, I faced that for four years. I had already been in vet school for one year and now I'm the one that, you know, she's the one that failed. She's the one that had to repeat, right? And I had to face that every day for four years in myself, not that anyone else was doing that to me. And then, you know, I have my son Baron between junior and senior year. I take the NAVLI right after, failed NAVLI the first time. Only two people like in the entire class failed NAVLI, okay? And I was one of them. So then I get out and, you know, trying to battle emergency medicine hours with being a good mom and wanting to be present for my children, which is very important to me to be there with my kids. And as Lap of Love started taking off, you know, my marriage at the time, we'd been married for almost 10 years at that point. He went through law school at the same time I went through vet school. We grew differently. We get married when we're 21. I mean, it's just, it's different, you know? And that ended up, you know, kind of falling away and we decided to get a divorce. And I don't wish that on my worst enemy. That's, you don't get married to get divorced, especially when you have kids and I'm not a part-time mom. I, I just, yep. I do not do well with that. Yeah. So then there was a, a year of, of finding that happiness and finding, you know, how am I going to identify myself now? And I'm, the business is growing, but my personal life you know, just feels awful. And, you know, so then you got out of that. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years ago, I look at this and I'm like, I am happier now than I ever thought was possible. Not as happy as I ever wanted to be, but I'm happier than what I thought was possible because constantly at every single step, I looked at myself and I said, what am I going to do? Am I going to do that? Or am I going to do that? And sometimes you are pushed away from the things that you don't like to do more than you're pulled toward this thing that you like. You may not know what you're getting pulled to, but all you know, is you look behind you and you say, that's not possible. And you're getting pushed away. And as long as you have the courage to step away from the things that don't make sense to you, you will always find, if you're asking enough questions, you know, if you're putting it out there enough, you will absolutely find that flow wherever it is. And sometimes it is in the most unexpected places. It's right in front of you. And you just had no idea. So it does look like this perfect picture from the outside. But, you know, my, my mom used to say, you wouldn't care so much what other people thought of you if you knew how infrequently they did. <laughs> That's a great. Isn't that great, I right? I got for that. four years of like, I oh, I'm the that. dumb one. I'm the one that they shouldn't have let in. They're probably thinking like, oh my gosh, she's still in vet school, right? And remember, I failed nutrition. I failed like, nutrition. Yeah. I got a call a couple of years ago from a dog food company that wanted me to be, you know, on their veterinary advisory board, and I'm like, 
you don't want to do that. <laughs> I'd fail nutrition. Like there's no way yeah. that like someone's going to find that out, you know, right, and then right, it's going right. to come out and yada, yada. No. And I've had three other requests since then <laughs> for a dog food company and I failed nutrition. So literally anything is it's possible. possible. Anything is possible. hundred percent. So I had one question about, and it, it's something that's a little less, this is quite a jarring pace change actually, because that's such uplifting, amazing advice to then go to, I say something about the self-care, yeah. as it were, particularly yeah. working in a field that you do where, you know, death is a, a part of that. And certainly one of the things that I've experienced in my career, and I, I write about this in my, my book for graduates, is be aware of the effects of the proximity to death. Right. And the act of actually terminating a life. Right. And for me, I was not really aware of that. And it was only later on in my career that I started to become aware that, oh, actually, some of this is quite affecting and I want to be able to highlight that to other mm-hmm. other people. And not so much, because there are beautiful euthanasias. Absolutely. Uh, that are just so the right thing and are perfect moments and, and are wonderful. But then there are the, the horrible, painful ones that you really don't want to be doing. And you wind up having to do them for whatever reason. But it grates against your values and, right. and cuts you internally. Like it, it scars your heart to do it. In a business that's primarily about delivering amazing end-of-life care. I mean, do you see that as a challenge? Is there a, I mean, I, compassion fatigue is a phrase I'm not sure I enjoy using. Right, me neither. Yeah. Um, but do you see effects of, effects of just that proximity to death right. and the act of ending life? And how, yeah. how do you balance or defend against it? You know, and it's, I actually get that question a lot, obviously. You know, how do you keep the team uplifted? And my response is that, we actually, with our group, you know, people that choose to do this, have chosen to do this. We aren't the ones at the bottom. We're actually at the ones at the top. We aren't combating compassion fatigue. We're actually the ones saying, let us handle these difficult cases. Let us be the ones to do this. I loved walking into the emergency exam room with a completely, you know, crazy client, meaning like at that moment, they can't think straight. They can be verbally abusive sometimes. They have no idea what's going on. But I took such pride in handling those conversations and it did not drain me. So when we are talking with a potential doctor to join us and they say, you know, I just don't know if I can handle this emotion. I say, listen, this is probably not the best place for you. Right. So we want those that elevate that experience of euthanasia into something that is a gift. Yep. And that's what it has to be. Now, I believe that we really needed some more education earlier on in, in our career, whether or not that's in vet school or afterwards. But 75% of veterinary students graduate without actually delivering that life-ending medication. And too often in veterinary medicine, we've actually treated euthanasia as a failure of medicine. But euthanasia is not a failure of medicine. It's just, it is about not only stopping suffering that's occurring at that moment, but also preventing it from occurring at all. So I think the number one thing, the short phrase that I can tell you about your question is that we have got to get straight with death in ourselves. You've got to get straight about it. You got to understand what it is, what it is not. And if you're going to say yes to somebody, if you're going to, you know, do that act. So what is it and what is it not? Or is that a personal thing that everyone has to answer for themselves? It's a personal question. I can give you, for me, what it is. I mean, I was that freshman that said, I will never euthanize a healthy animal in vet school. I said that. I raised my hand. Right? But so what I'm about to share with you is not something that came to me easily. It was a progression of of things, okay? For example, this one night I was at the emergency clinic, and a woman came in with a 12-year-old diabetic cat. And 12-year-old diabetic cat looks relatively normal, right? Relatively normal. And she went and saw the associate that was working with me that night, a fantastic veterinarian, compassionate, loving, empathetic, caring, all that stuff. We work for a great boss, Dr. Katie Meyer, who was just amazing at helping us help the animal first. You know, it really wasn't about the money. It was about the animal. And 
the, the associate I was working with, um, she spent a lot of time in the room with the woman. Long story short, she did not euthanize. And the woman said, I just can't do this anymore at the beginning of the appointment. She didn't euthanize. Um, the woman left the, the clinic, came back in five minutes later and said, I'm really sorry, my cat got out of the carrier. She just ran away. Please call me if you can find her. We looked at the security camera and she let the cat out of the carrier. She's crying, give the cat a hug and let her end into the woods. And it was a huge moment for me because I thought, oh my gosh, saying no comes with very deep ramifications, very, very deep ramifications. We have got to accept what it means to say yes and what it means to say no to somebody that's requesting something as heavy as euthanasia. And more importantly, I don't believe the veterinarian, uh, that the client should be the one that requests euthanasia first. It should be the veterinarian that says, this is not a bad option here. Yep. And let them have that discussion with us together. Yep. Have you got any tips for people on how to handle conversations around euthanasia with pet owners? Oh my goodness, I have so many, Dave. Oh, like, okay. Do you feel like we do I'm like, an start entire it from separate... Top. Oh my gosh. Well, literally, I can lecture on the words that we use, but we've got to prime people for a peaceful experience. And a lot of times we'll say to people, go home, call me when you're ready. I just asked an entire room of veterinarians if they knew that they were ready for their own pet and two of them out of hunter raise their hand. We don't know when they're ready and the owners don't know. So don't say, go home, call me when you're ready. Say, call me when you're ready to talk about this. Call me when you're ready to have the conversation. And then when they're actually in the room, do not ever say to somebody, you are making the right decision. Our clients don't practice veterinary medicine. We do. You know, listen, we together are making the best decision. And then if somebody's having a hard time, a lot of times they'll say, um, I just want him to go to sleep and not wake back up. That's exactly what we do. That's what euthanasia is. Well, listen, I just want him to pass naturally. Like your bulldog isn't natural. Period in a sentence, like no qualification needed. You know, what's natural is an animal that's five or six years of age in the wild and a predator comes and gets you when you slow down. That's natural. And mother nature isn't quick nor painless. So people say like, I feel like I'm murdering my best friend. Like, you're not. I'm pushing the medication. I'm the one doing it. I feel like I'm playing God. You're not. I am. You know, I just, I want to come home and find him passed away. Well, let's talk about what that looks like. Because sometimes that's a little bit more difficult than being here and providing a peaceful end-of-life experience. Because I do believe that if we provided and assisted people through that end-of-life experience in the most peaceful way possible, that people are going to heal more quickly and they're going to open their hearts and homes to another pet more quickly. And we could literally save the pet population. So my mother-in-law had two cats, Fred and Barney. I think I referenced them in the book as well. Like she she adored these cats and they were they were really nice cats and the end came and Fred had a chronic renal failure and became azotemic and in the end had the seizure at home mm. and it was that that pushed her over the edge so it was yeah. the trauma of seeing that and then took him to the, the vets and he was euthanized she still weeps when you mention that cat's no. name yeah. and because she harbors enormous guilt and right. and it wasn't you know, the experience just wasn't like if she could have had what you offer, if you could have been her doctor, she'd no. be like actually, she'd probably have 20 more cats now. She probably does all a favor <laughs> in, in, in not being her doctor. But that impact is huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge. It's huge. And it's, it's the greatest gift we give the pet is the relief of pain and suffering. But the greatest gift we give the family is the relief of guilt. Absolutely. Give me the top three tips. Maybe I don't want it to be like soundbitey, trivialized things, but mm -hmm. what are the top three errors that doctors are making that if they didn't do would improve the experience for the pet and remove, help Absolutely. remove the guilt for them? And I know pet. exactly wow. the ones that, that I would tell you. So number one is love on that pet. So as soon as you walk into that appointment with the euthanasia, the first thing you say should be a compliment to that pet. 
right? Of course, say to the owner, because everyone else has seen that pet and be like, oh my gosh, Max is still alive. He looks awful, right? He looks terrible. What are you doing? And they already have this guilt that starts building up in them. And as soon as you accept that pet the way that they are and say, hi, beautiful, hi, handsome, you know, so good to see you. You are loving the pet the same way that the owner is loving their pet. And it's a huge gift to them. Um, tip number two is accepting and acknowledging the decision that you are making with the family. So saying we are doing the very best thing that we can possibly be doing at this moment. And I've walked into homes with this one 22-year-old dog that had oxygen on his face, you know, and ladder recumbent, non-responsive. And the owner is literally still asking me, am I doing the right thing? I said, you're not doing anything. <laughs> you're not doing anything. You've done an amazing job. Yeah. I'm helping you through this decision-making process. And I know that this is the very best thing that we can do at that moment. Yeah. Whether or not she should get that far, that's beyond judgment at that point. At that right, moment, right. it does not matter anymore. So in even those families that you think are okay with the decision, just verbalizing that they will come back to me, you know, years down the road and say, my veterinarian said this last time, it just helped me so much. And the third thing is physically touch that person. So I know it sounds a little strange, but there's nothing that you can say or do at these moments of grief other than a physical touch. And the most benign places to touch someone in business are on the shoulder or on the elbow right. or gentle pat on the hand, yep. but physically touch them. And just, that means I'm here with you. Yeah just means I'm here. I got you. You know, I know what you're going through. And of course you can also, you know, if you want a fourth one, you know, share your own experiences. Cause sometimes people that are going through this forget that we're animal lovers too. Definitely. And one of the bigger honors I have is actually helping other veterinarians through the process because you get to tell them and, and support team, just be mom or dad right now. You're not nurse anymore. You're not doctor. You're mom and dad. Let me walk you through this because when it's my turn, I'm going to need someone also. I won't be emotionally sober enough to get yeah. through that. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so let's go on to the short form questions now. Okay. And you can go anywhere you like with these, short or long. But okay. um, so the first thing is, what's the thing that you do better than anybody else? What's your superpower? What is my superpower? You know, when, when I talk to the kids about, and, you know, what would your superpower be? I always say I want to read minds. Like, I love understanding what somebody else is going through. Because so many times we jump to judgments and we think, oh, oh my yeah. gosh, that person didn't like me. But holy cow, like, they just had a really bad day, right? Or something's going on in their life and their father just got admitted to the hospital. We don't know. But I love getting into somebody else's mind. And the, the less judgment that I have on people, the more open I find myself. Your curiosity woman. Yeah. That's your, yes. your super... Curiosity. Yes, attack. I can do. I can take that. Sure. <laughs> and so, what's your kryptonite, curiosity woman? Oh my goodness! What is my kryptonite? My kryptonite is someone asking me for something because I don't say no very well, and I do <laughs> believe that our, our greatest. Yeah, I honestly believe that our greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness. And if you ask any of my team, they would probably say the same thing that I don't say no. <laughs> okay. All right. So imagine you are like. Uh, the god of veterinary medicine you're floating around. <laughs> I asked this question okay. to Andy uh -huh. and he got a little too excited about it. Right, right. He was like, well, He's obviously. like, obviously, I'm already the god of veterinary <laughs> Hi, <Andy>. medicine. <laughs> we love you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you're flying around up there and you have, with your powers, you can change one thing. What would that one thing be and why? I want everybody to release their judgment of each other and of the clients. Honestly, that would be the thing. I think as particularly in our generation right now, we're 85% women. We're very different than we were three generations ago. And everyone can get on their own horse and say, well, they're judging me. But you're judging them by saying that. So look at their perspective and just accept the fact that things don't always need to change because nothing was wrong behind us. Everything is okay. I have that sign in my house. You know, I hate to spoil the ending, but everything's going to be okay. Because <laughs> then we get to move forward with positivity. All right. 
What's the best event you've ever attended or you would recommend people attend? And why was it so good? Just any event. Any event? Yeah, just the most impactful event that you ever attended. And what was it and where was it? So last summer, my family and I went to what's called Nonviolent Communication. It was started by Marshall Rosenberg. You heard of it? I have. So they do a family heart camp in the Redwood Forest in California. And so I'm from Florida. You know, the hot humidity. Yep. We flew out there. And you camp, like an actual tent camp. And it's high in the upper 60s, low in the 40s or so. But it was six days of no cell phone service. And I mean zero cell phone service. The kids ran away from me. They never do. They're always with me. They ran away from me. And they were gone for long time, you know, but we're all on this little campground together. So you trusted the 50 or 60 people that were there and everyone watched over their kids. And these kids played with sticks and dirt and no iPads. And six days Without technology, six days being connected to nature, six days being connected to the people that were there and being surrounded by people that were half super hippies and half completely, you know, <laughs> what we would just call you know, normal urban people. Right. But it was the consciousness of that place was absolutely it was pure. Yeah, it was completely pure. Amazing. If you were to recommend a book that anyone would read. And it could be leadership, it could be anything, mm-hmm. or maybe the most impactful book for you. What was that book? The most impactful book that I have ever read would probably be The Four Agreements. The last name is, is Ruiz, Miguel Ruiz, I believe. And it's basically about, it's about how you can look at yourself, you know, do your best, not better than your best, not less than your best. Don't make any assumptions about other people, you know, and, and just, I probably leave, read that book about once a year. That sounds like a cool book. I'm going to have to put that on my it's reading list now. This book. is one of my favorite things about doing the podcast. I get to learn all the, the best books I should be out there reading. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like I really do this podcast mostly for me. It's right, right. I just want to know whatsoever. this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, what would that be? Let it go. Everything's going to be okay. Honestly, the, the times that I've ever felt in the sludge, it's just simply, it's been me in the sludge. I did it to myself. It was my sludge. Let it go. <laughs> And have that confidence to know it's going to be okay. Awesome. What's the most controversial thing people don't know about you but matters? Probably the most controversial thing and the thing that took me a little bit to actually speak about in public was going through a divorce. It really was. I mean, my parents are still together. You don't, you don't go through that on purpose. It has made me a better parent in a lot of ways. It's balanced out my life. And that's a very difficult thing because if I had not gone through that before, I would not be able to judge somebody that's been through that decision-making process the way that I am able to do that now. And it took a, a lot of a courage to kind of keep going through something that society doesn't think is normal at all. But I think that it has to do with us going into relationships and situations with improper expectations mm. and not knowing that fulfillment is a feeling that you get every moment. And you're not responsible for someone else's happiness and they're not responsible for your happiness. So, you know, you get to take the right steps and defend yourself and others and stand up for all those things in the best way that makes sense to you. Last question. If you can send one tweet to the world, do you tweet? Do you Instagram? What's your thing? I do. Instagram is my thing. It's just simple. Yep. And I push it to Facebook. Well, that screws the question up, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, I can do it. The question is, the question is, if you can send one tweet to the world, you've got 140 characters, what would it say? So... So let's do that, and you can do the Instagram one. If you need one picture to impact the world that leaves the impression of what Danny McVetty is, what would it be? What's the picture? It would probably be me laughing, honestly. I have only one tattoo right here on my wrist, and it says happiness. 
And to me, it is, it's the purpose in life. You know, we can get a walk around here and just say all these things about what we should and shouldn't do, but really why? why are, like, why are we here? We're not here to judge people. We're not here to do anything else other than be happy. That's what it's all about. Yep. Awesome. Yep. I love it. That seems like a perfect point. And I don't think we'll get a nicer moment to end the conversation. Danny, thank you so much. I'm very grateful for your time. It's lovely to connect with you again and get to know you a bit better. And I think, yeah, just awesome sharing some thoughts. Thank you, Dave. Really inspiring. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, peeps, just before you jump off the podcast, just a little word from me before you go. I just wondered if you liked the podcast, and why wouldn't you? Danny was an amazing guest. But if you liked it, would you jump on iTunes and leave me a review? That would be super cool. It also helps to push the podcast up the ratings, which makes it more popular, which makes me happy, which makes me do more podcasts. Win, win, all round. The other thing you can do if you like the content I'm producing, don't forget to follow me on Facebook at drdavenickel.com forward slash Facebook or Instagram at instagram.com forward slash drdavenickel. Until next time's Blunt Dissection, be well, be safe, be happy, and I'll see you again. <laughs>